0: the 35,000 overview one, one more time of the letter, and it's basically three components. This is why the letter is written, and this is kind of a, <clears throat> how we filter and process the entire message of the letter. Number one, the church is struggling with apostolic authority. Can I just put it to you very simple? Anybody that has issues with apostolic authority or issues with God, because obviously they're speaking on God's behalf, you have issues with God. To deal with authority is to deal with God, because God is a God of order, He's a God of structure. And the issue here is that the church was established, we've been given and entrusted the keys of the kingdom. This is Matthew chapter 16, when the apostles, when Jesus asked the apostles, who do people say that I am? Well, some say that you are John the Baptist, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then he says, who do you say I am? And then Peter speaks and says, you are, come on, say it with me. You are the Christ, <clears throat> which is basically the title. You are Messiah, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail. That statement is basically Jesus giving the keys of the kingdom, the gospel to the church to a steward that gospel. Well, that experience implies that that commissioning implies that the church operates with the authority of this is what we call forensic authority is the authority of somebody else given to the church. And tragically, the church in Corinth, the church today, we operate as if the authority is ours. Now, you have some authority. You do have some authority. But any authority that you have as as a father, as a grandparent, as an owner of a business, whatever you do with your time and your body and your sexuality is... It's an authority that needs to be under the submission of the ultimate authority, which is God. And apparently the church is trying to operate in autonomy, and that's not going to work very well for them. And obviously Paul is writing to them to correct that. That creates a domino effect. And the next thing that is happening, they're struggling with leadership within the church, because this is kind of a, a domino effect. This is this is the result of... the Number two is a symptom. That's not the issue. The issue is not corrupt leadership. The issue is not uh, people who enter into office with good intentions and then somewhere in the process things got twisted and corrupted no the issue is once again the absence of apostolic authority which apostolic authority is basically the scriptures that's what it is and in this case you and I we lead from the second chair and then the last thing that Paul is going to do is going to um, explain or remind them of the consequences or the results of gospel proclamation and that is obviously that you're gonna find traction you're gonna find opposition how do I know this This is why. Verse 8. Open your Bibles. Look at how he begins verse 8. He's speaking of the opposition by proclaiming the gospel. When he proclaims the gospel. For we do not want you to be unaware. Potentially, you don't know what's taking place. Paul says, brothers and sisters, he's speaking to the church. And this is what I want you to be aware, or to be fully aware, is that we have gone through afflictions. And these afflictions occurred while we were in Asia. What type of afflictions, Paul? He responds to that question. The afflictions when we were burdened excessively. Now, some of you have heard these phrases, which I don't think they're biblical, but I think Paul is close in the case that God will not give you more than you can handle. Have you heard of that before? Is that true? he's saying basically that we were burdened excessively beyond our ability to carry how do i know this because look at what he says it was beyond our strength so that we got to the point that we i don't know if it was suicidal i don't know he got to the place where hey we're basically done hope is lost we are in a despair even of life This is the place when Paul, I guess you can call it, he hit rock bottom. Now, the beauty of the gospel, now I'm I'm just going to give you the the end of the movie, okay? The beauty of the gospel is that 2,000 years ago, there was a man that got exactly to the same place, and nobody came to his rescue. It's pretty obvious that if Paul is writing in past tense, and he's given this narrative, it's because he survived. Does that make sense? So, maybe you're coming from an experience where you hit rock bottom. Maybe you're in a place right now where you are finding yourself with despair and and hopelessness. Maybe we're heading towards, uh, regardless where we are, listen to me for a second. The God of the Bible not only is real, but the God of the Bible who experienced exactly the same thing in the person of Christ. And no one came to his rescue. The implication is that he knows exactly what we go through when we face those situations. Number one. And secondly, this is the beauty of the gospel. Is that if, not if, but if you go or when you go through this type of experiences, listen to me for a second, you will not be abandoned. You will not be left alone. Does that make sense? I don't know if that brings any comfort to anybody because the promise was never that you were going to avoid or be protected or immune or or somehow, you know, uh, avoiding the guarantee to avoid this type of experiences. The only promise based on Psalm 23 is that He is my shepherd and I shall not, come on, say it, I shall not want. Even when I go through the valley of the shadow and death, guess what? his rod, his presence, his company. And by the way, for the Christian, sometimes is the shepherd the one who takes us through the valley of the shadow. What's the point? The point, the win, the win always for the Christian is a person. The win is literally that at the end, what you get at the end, even though it's a place called heaven, but heaven is a person. What you get is Jesus. Does that make sense? What you get is the shepherd. And in this case, that's exactly because of the abandonment of Christ why that's why we get access and we get to experience uh, or to or to witness the beauty of restoration verse 9 indeed again affirming he is confirming everything he said we had the sentence of death now he's using language um Paul is at the place. He got to the place where not only he hit rock bottom, but he's at the place where everything around him, around him is lost. Hope is lost. Companionship is lost. I mean, everything literally just deployed. It's not working out. And the concept of having a sentence of death is the concept that since everything is gone, all that I have is God. So I guess if you were to get the point of the message, how can we get to the place where all that I have is God before I get to that place? How can I make this normative in my life where I can make decisions through the lenses of a worldview that I behave, I think, I process life, ups and downs, difficulties and successes through the understanding that all that I have ultimately is the person of God. That's all that I have. And I'm bringing this into the conversation because historically, this is historically what typically takes place when it comes to how we react Christians and non-Christians to difficulties, to hitting rock bottom is two choices. Either you're going to run to him or you're going to run come on say it from him. Those are the only two choices. And my this is my suggestion, my my understanding What is going to determine whether you're running towards God or you're going to be running from God is going to be how you process. Now, listen, listen, I don't don't want to get back into this too much. But verse eight, if you want to put it this way, in the beginning of nine is nothing else but Paul reintroducing the biblical worldview, lenses, the biblical worldview of evil and suffering. What you don't want to go, what you don't want to do is go through the experience of seeing the brokenness of the world or experience the brokenness of the world and then trying to find the lenses and say, okay, so what does the Bible say? What what do I do? Where are the lenses? And then you try to put the lenses and you put the wrong lenses. And that's what typically causes for Christians to say, well, Christianity is not working out. This is why I don't go to church. This is why I grew up in church, but churches makes no relevance, has no relevance in my life. Because what, what the experience, what the scenario is exposing is basically your... See, lenses are unavoidable. Everybody sees life through lenses. And the question is simply, what type of lenses? Apparently, the church in Corinth, they were mixing the lenses. And I don't know by mixing, but... Um, If you wear glasses and i don't know if i'm speaking to anybody but did you ever get glasses where they have two different prescriptions anybody wears glasses like that where it's not the same prescription that's what i think i think the word if you want to look at this through the lenses um, of um, (coughs) theology of doctrine this is called syncretism and I know it's a big word, don't Google it, but syncretism is basically, this is, this is what the people of, God has, people of God has done throughout the, this is the reason why the people of God in the Old Testament got into trouble and went on exile. This is why Paul is writing to the Corinthians, Sync- syncretism. Syncretism is this, yes to Jesus, yes to God, but something else. God in tradition, God in my past, God in my, mm, does, does that make sense? Now, remember, the imagery, the imagery from the very beginning Very first commandment in the Ten Commandments, on the big ones. You should have have not no other gods before me. What's the the point? The point is exclusivity. Does that make sense? Exclusivity. So our daughter got married about a month and a half ago. In marriage is the covenant of exclusivity. Is between a covenant relationship between one woman and one... Come on. I know I know that's not political correct but that's what the bible says one man and one woman but is the concept of like exclusivity does that make sense Because if you step outside of the boundaries, it's called either adultery or it's called fornication if you're not married. Tracking what I'm saying? It's exactly the same concept in the Bible when it comes to God. God said, you are my people. Right before chapter 20 of the book of Exodus, which is where the commandments are. Before the marching orders of what you're supposed to do. Right before chapter 19, verse 6, God says, you are a nation of priests to me. What's the point? That God made a declaration of who they were before they obeyed. Does that sound like the gospel? going to say that again. Salvation is God declaring you right before you have any testimony or evidence that you are a Christian. Come on, talk to me. I'm, I'm, I'm saying this because a lot, of, many of us, we reverse the order. We take the gospel and make a law, meaning it's my testimony, my conduct, my behavior, my perspective that makes me a Christian. No, no, no. You're a Christian because of the testimony of Jesus you're a Christian because what Jesus did not because what you do or what I've done or what I'm trying to do now what you do is important and that's exactly why the instruction see the instruction of the Bible is for Christians who took the gospel and reversed the order and they're trying to earn especially in times of difficulties in times where we are supposed to run to God not run from God so in this case he is speaking to a generation who are struggling with this principle. Now, last week, once again, if you were here, maybe you were not. And uh, this is why I love for you to take notes or maybe visit the, 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 the YouTube page. But I gave you the first reason of the purpose of that suffering. Now, look at me for a second. Since suffering in the Bible is normative. Do you know what normative means? Continue. Normal. Normal expected or regular. Suffering in the Bible is not occasional. Suffering in the Bible is not circumstantial. And especially suffering for the Christian is not the sign that God somehow got distracted. And he was like, "Mm, what is COVID? I've never seen COVID before. No, that's not God. God is always in control. What's the point? Now, here's the point. The point is that when it comes to suffering, what you Two things that you want to, sh- if you want to put this on your notes, two things you want to make sure does not happen in suffering. Number one, if you're a follower of Christ, and number one, you don't want to be surprised by suffering. If if the Bible presents suffering, if Jesus is the model, if you're saved to walk in Christ likeness, if you're saved to be the image, the aroma, the presence, the worldview of Jesus in this world. And Jesus was known as the men of sorrows as the suffering servant if the vocation of Jesus was to suffer Guess what you've been called to do Therefore you cannot be surprised by suffering because if if suffering surprises you Potentially that's what he's exposing potentially you have embraced a Oh man, I don't want to say this word. I am gonna say it a mockery a caricature of the gospel which is the gospel that says, if I come to Christ, is to avoid suffering, or I'm coming to Christ because I have gone through a lot of suffering, so no more suffering. No, 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 that's not the gospel. The gospel is simply understanding that if, or since the win, the goal is to walk in Christ-likeness on earth, it's not simply heaven when you die, but to be the presence of Christ, more than likely how you and I are shaped into the image of Jesus is through suffering. Because suffering, I'm going to say this again, suffering typically in the ideal world pushes you to run to God. How do I know this? I'm going to say this again, because when he received the sentence of death, when Paul experienced to the place, look at the bottom, despair, even of life is basically Paul saying what we did is we ran to the Lord we 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 simply pour our soul before have you been in that place before where you simply say this is all i got either you break through or we're done we're going home there there is no there is no plan b in this scenario okay my point is this once again you don't want to be surprised by suffering understand that this is normative so the question when you suffer when you and i go through struggles the question is not why me the question is why not that's the question Second thing that you don't want to do when it comes to suffering. Number one is don't be surprised. Second thing you want to do in suffering, you don't want for suffering to be the result of disobedience, stubbornness, self-centeredness, craziness, and just sin, sinfulness. Does that make sense? Because at the end of the day, what you want, this is what you want. You want to experience, and I'm giving you a recent one from last week, you want to experience the suffering where Jesus becomes your cosigner. Meaning, even though you're going through the valley of the shadow, and death i am responsible and accountable of the outcome go ahead and do it make the of faith stay true to your conviction does that make sense don't deviate from what i've called you to be and do am i making sense this morning so what you want is you you want jesus as the co-signer now when jesus is your co-signer does not imply that the end is going to be Pleasant or favorable to you on this earth necessarily can it be potentially when Jesus becomes your cosigner, all that it implies That's what it implies even though you may lose even do even though you may grieve even though you may die Well, everybody dies at the end. It's not a maybe you die. I die everybody look at me the the experience in the lost Even though is a loss even though is grief even though is terminal even though fill in the blank look at me is gain in the kingdom of god no yes so john the baptist john the baptist brother john not the presbyterian he was the baptist he's incarcerated and he's being announced in the arrival of jesus and when he's in prison for proclaiming the gospel and he's about to be decapitated remember what he did he sent some of his followers to jesus and said jesus are you the one are you really the one and jesus returns the message and says oh john yes i am but you get to die in prison in other words we would love to hear this as jesus are you the one oh yes let's break through and you come out mm, no, nah, that wasn't the case now could jesus take him yeah it's just how god operates okay i don't know maybe this is not a very encouraging you know message but i'm just I'm just conveying. I'm in sales, he's in management, okay? So don't, don't get upset with me. Number one, reason one, here we go. Why, what do you do when you suffer? What do you do, Paul, what do you do? Verse four, this from last week. On verse four, he says, hey, this is why. In the context of suffering, the context of despair and difficulties and just sentence of death, who, this is God, who comforts us in all of our afflictions. So once again, the promise was never that affliction was gonna be to remove. The promise was he was gonna, Come on, say it. Comfort us. So here's my question. Do you know the God of comfort? Have you met the God who is trustworthy? Have you met? Now I'm not asking if you trust in God. Because I know you do. Or at least we're trying to, right? Our faith sometimes is shaky. But the issue is not whether we trust in Him. The issue is whether He is trustworthy. Look at the difference, see the difference? So, here's the point. He's saying, hey, he is the one who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we, here's the reason why you're comforted, you you receive the comfort, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the same comfort that we we have ourselves, we are comforted by God. So what's the point? The point is, and, and I'm, I'm, I I used this earlier, in the earlier, so I'll say again, look at this table, and look at this cover on the table, typically we put covers to display beautiful things. So at home, we have a special dinner, we have special guests, we bring the special dishes into the experience, we put the the, the pictures of the kids, whatever. So the point is this, when God comforts you, And the comfort is not the guarantee that the affliction is going to disappear. The comfort is the guarantee that even though you may lose at the end, even though the the, the diagnosis is irreversible and the damage is irreversible, He will be with you. And I explained to you at the beginning, the reason why the guarantee that He will never leave you and He will never forsake you is because He left and He forsook His Son. Does that make sense? So, again, that's part of the narrative. See, the abandonment of Jesus is the guarantee that He will walk with me, although I go through the valley of the shadow and death. So, again, first reason. Second reason, and this is where we are this morning on verse 9. We just read... a a, a while ago that he says, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we... This is the reason why we were put into this scenario of this. This is where we got to the place where we hit rock bottom, where there was nothing left except to look up to God. We had no choice but to run to God. Why? Listen to Paul. The reason is because so we will not trust in ourselves. So would it be possible that it is through difficulties and experience that He's shaping, He is transferring, accrediting, and the Word is imputing His worldview in us. It is in that context, because our tendency is not to run to God. What's our tendency? To run. I'm going to argue that we are a generation that most of the suffering in our lives, has, as Christians, has been because we're running away from God, because of syncretism, because we believe in God and we believe in self. We believe in God and we believe in fill in the blank. And God is basically saying, hey, through the pause of Paul, this is the reason because you are not to trust in yourself. Now, Paul obviously gives you biblical principles, divine message and intervention. And then Paul, Paul is the master of bringing up his personal experience, how this principle is applicable. How do I know this? Because of the thorn in the flesh. This is one of the examples how Paul is not supposed to trust in himself. Remember the thorn in the flesh? This is chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. Apparently, it is the combination, the two, the two sides of the same coin. It is weakness and it is faith. Like the two legs, which one do you need to walk correctly? And the answer is yes, both, right? It's like faith and works. So in this case, the way that you trust is when you recognize your weaknesses. The deeper, the more difficult it gets, the more potentially despair you may find, the more complicated things get, the more the intervention of His presence allows you to, listen to me, allows you to increase, not your faith, but allows you to increase the object of your faith. Because I know you have faith. Everybody speaks of faith. We are a generation of a lot of faith everywhere. But the issue is not faith. The issue is who are we trusting? Is the object of our faith so in the apparently apparently what we're seeing is that weaknesses um, limitations uh conflict and and difficulties are the perfect scenario to bring this combination to see god at work now he closes on this uh, sentence of death and giving us the reason why is not to trust in ourselves and then look at this conjunction grammatically speaking at the bottom of the of the verse. But but, here it comes, but, in God. We don't trust in self, we trust, come on, say it. We, we trust in God. And who is this God? He is the one who defeated the number one enemy of man. He has, de- now look at me for a second. If, if God has defeated death, which He has. No? Yes? Come on, come on. Here's the implication. That implies that everything, Jesus has dominion over everything. I gave you at the very beginning of the sermon, the three reasons why he wrote the letter. And the first one was dominion under submission. The first Adam wanted to have dominion above dominion and wanted to be like God. God placed him in the garden with, with the wife and said, you, you, you name the animals, which is dominion. You, you subdue the earth. You rule over the earth. And man, you, I mean, you are over everything as a steward. What did he do? He said, that's not enough. I want to be like God. So the first Adam violated that principle. The second Adam which is Jesus Paul says that he did not consider equality with God being God himself and he detached he humbled himself he was born out of a virgin he was born in a manger he walked literally as a car- carpenter as an itinerant preacher and he died for yours what's the point all that I'm trying to tell you is exactly that the God of the Bible is the one who has control over everything even the devil so if I were to teach Old Testament right right now to which i'm not gonna do it because of time through the through the timeline of the old testament and every one of the world powers beginning with egypt beginning with canaan which is where you know uh, uh, Goliath comes into the story and then you go into Syria and Assyria and Babylon and, and, and every one of those world powers until you get to the place of Jesus look at me every one of them who were enemies of the people of God and took him into exile every one of them were servants of God there were instruments on the purposes of God and all that I'm trying to tell you based on the fact that God has the ability to raise people from the dead is that even death your death and my death is simply a Vehicle into the experience of celebrating the win, the goal. And that's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 For me to live is Christ, and to die was death. So I don't want you to get, I don't want you to die. I don't want to die. But at the same time, while we are on earth, we get the perspective and the ability, supernatural intervention to process the sadness, the grief, the despair of death because it is. It is despair. It's not supposed to. It's the result of sin. But we process death, physical death, through the lenses and through the experience of the ultimate. And in the ultimate, when Jesus comes back, look at me. You're not only coming back into life. You're not only experiencing fullness of life with Christ, but you are experiencing experiencing the restoration of everything that was lost. Every single thing will be restored. And this is why Paul says he is the one who raises the dead. Let me let me invite you to pray with me in close with this. This is the one who rescues us. <laughs> Remember what I said at the beginning? The reason why Paul is speaking in past tense of everything that happened and the abandonment and the despair and the sentence of death is because Jesus was abandoned. What's the point? Once again, rescue who was the rescue? Who called upon the name of the Lord and didn't get an answer? Who's the one who lived a perfect life and he was treated as a as a cursed man? It was Jesus. This is why He rescued us. And and, and the implications is that this rescuing is that Paul brings us the titles for God through the person of Christ. The implication is that he knows the Father of mercies. And the Father of mercies had no mercy over his son. His first son, his only begotten son, received no mercy. The, the, The God of all comfort did not comfort The second person of the Trinity. It is the one unto Him who is able. So Paul is basically using another title when he says He rescue us from so great a danger of death. And listen to the language. He will rescue us. He on whom we have set our hope, and He will yet deliver us. And this is how He chooses to deliver. Folks, listen to me for a second. Not only He delivers and rescues, but he chooses how to do it. Are you tracking what I'm saying? let to say that again. Look at me. He rescues, he saves, but he chooses. How. See, this is why the church must preach the Bible, because the preaching of the Bible is one of the main ways how he delivers people. I don't know if that makes sense. And I know it sounds like a self-service deal because I'm preaching, but I'm telling you guys, you got to place yourself always under the teaching of the Bible. Does that make sense? I don't care where you are. I don't care who you are. I don't care how old you get to be. I don't come. I don't care how much, you know, you have to be under the teaching of the Bible. And this is why when when he basically says, if you also join in helping us, this is how he delivered him. You join, you church, you are so dysfunctional. Speaking to the Corinthians, you are so broken. You are so difficult. But God, who is in control of of everything, even of your dysfunctionality, he says, you, plural you, also join in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons. In, In other words, your prayers was the instrument that God used, To rescue us, so ultimately, the character, the prayer, the person, the beauty of Jesus in my suffering was displayed. In my loss, Jesus is a win. Does that make sense? When everybody left me, Jesus was with me. That's what he He says. It was through your prayers. It was made was given by many persons in our behalf for the favor granted to us through the prayers of many. So how does God deliver? This is the deliverance of God. He uses the brokenness of prayers, the brokenness of people who pray combined with the grace of God. I'm going to argue that the fact that we get to pray is grace. Why? This is why. Because if you look at religions around the world, religions around the world, there is a lot of religions that they pray way more than we do. No? Yes? They're more disciplined. They're more committed. What is the difference? Who do we pray to? In the grace of God, is that we pray to the God who is in control of everything. The God who not only came to teach us how to go through suffering. He suffered on our behalf. Are you seeing the difference? He's not the God that just came as a teacher to instruct us, although he did a lot of instruction. But he was God who came to preach to us, and that makes the difference. (laughs) So, Paul, what's the point? Glad you asked. The point is that our... The word confidence is the word boasting. This is where we find our confidence. It's not on the doctor's report. It's not on the hopes of a new president, hopefully better president. Listen to me, What's our comp- what, where is your boasting? On your retirement, on your youth, on your strength and your knowledge and experience? Self, come on, where is your confidence? Paul says, for our proud confidence is basically found and the morality is And what immorality is You don't have to be a Christian To understand what is right And what is wrong Tracking with me That was corrupted in Genesis And through Jesus Christ We get the ability now To see that Jesus Look at me Jesus There was a reason Why Jesus could have not Be born on a Thursday Die on a Friday And resurrected on Sunday Jesus not only had to die for us But He had to live for us Because the life of Jesus Modelled the concept the freedom the freedom not to do what I want the freedom see this is free will free will is the ability to do what is pleasing to God that's freedom especially when my experiences and my surroundings are not pleasing huh anybody with me remember Jesus is cried out to the Father if it's possible for me to avoid drinking of the cup right it's not pleasing Jesus is going to the cross and not pleasing. Jesus is going to take literally the shame and the brokenness of the world, and at the cross, He becomes the, the accumulation, the, the, He becomes the crystallization, He becomes the, the representation of the most grotesque and obscene expression of sin. That's what Jesus becomes. It's not that who He is. That's not who He is. He becomes. He assumes our shame and our brokenness. And in that context, Jesus has the freedom, look at me, the freedom to choose the Father. He chooses to trust the trustworthiness of the Father. That His death is simply the way that He literally takes trust faith into faithfulness and he remains faithful to the end to the place that even though he takes his last breath and says it, it is finished and he's placed on a graveside on the third day based on the trust that he placed in the father not on himself in the father that perfect life of obedience Guarantees that on Sunday, even though you die, even though you lose, even though, and you can name over and over on the shame and the brokenness and and the pain that he experienced, on Sunday, there is the newness of life because of the ability to choose God in the context that is not permissible, allowable, or convenient. I think that's how Jesus formed that in our lives. And then conscience cannot be violated. And then eventually, eventually, conscience is exactly how you and I will be judged. Look at me. The beauty of the Gospel, folks. Here's the beauty of the Gospel. The beauty of the Gospel is that what Jesus did by resurrecting from among the dead, and maybe this is the first time you're gonna hear this in your life, and if it is, or maybe it sounds a little weird, here's my invitation. I know the Cowboys play today, and hopefully win, but before the game, or maybe after the game, if you're celebrating, or not. I don't know what you're gonna do after the game. Whatever the case may be, just, just go into the Word of God and find out what I'm about to tell you. What Jesus transferred, accredited, gave us, imputed, placed on us was precisely his conscience. His worldview. The way he saw life. Look at me. You want to know what the conscience of Jesus is and the worldview of Jesus is? Is the scriptures? because He came to fulfill the Bible. So when you come to Christ, if you have never given your life to Jesus, coming to know Christ is embracing a brand new worldview. It's not the improvement of your worldview. It's a brand new worldview. And the worldview implies, the worldview of Jesus is that this law of God now becomes sweeter than honey. It's a delight. In the past, this, you look at this and you're like, No one is going to tell me what to do. Oh, I got to go to church. Do I have to tithe? Ah, Does that make sense? It's out of duty, not spirit. This morning is enabling your very own life to say yes to Jesus. Even though things may not be conducive, even though you might be even confused or maybe doubtful that's perfectly fine because this is based on the supernatural power of the holy spirit through the exposition of the word in the context of brothers and sisters who want to walk alongside with you two thousand years ago he chose to give his body he chose to give his blood and it was exactly the opposite it was in despair and abandonment and betrayal so today the church can celebrate in the same context of intimacy When you walk into this place, did you guys get a hold of this? Do you have it with you? For us, uh, uh, listen to me for a second. This is important, what I'm about to say. The prerequisite for you to participate, typically, and some churches may have other, you know, Requirements and that's perfectly fine. But my understanding from the Scriptures is that the prerequisite for you to participate in the Lord's Supper, because as you know, there is nothing magical here. This is just grape juice, and then a little piece of, what is it, bread? Whatever that is. A little cracker, whatever it is. Come on. You know, this is nothing magical. Look at me. The prerequisite is that you need to say yes to Jesus for this to be meaningful to you. Does that make sense? Without Jesus, it's just another piece of juice, in which I don't mind you taking it. I mean, come on, if you want more, there's some leftovers there. If you want to take more, but there's nothing magical. This is about the symbolism that 2,000 years ago wasn't symbolism. It was real. It was a body that was broken, and it was blood that was shed, innocent, perfect body and perfect blood, shed for our sins and for our restoration.